This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. The guest today, in an interview recorded by co-host David Bilbrey, is the microbiologist and soil researcher, Dr. Elaine Ingham. During this conversation, David and Elaine explore the microbiology of the soil, the impact of this life on the health of our plants and agricultural system, how we can be citizen scientists, and the power of a microscope to bring all these ideas together right in front of our eyes. Underneath it all is the importance of healthy, living soil for human well-being as individuals, participants in a community, and as citizens of the world. Enjoy this time with David and Dr. Ingham, and I'll join you again afterward. Hi, this is David Bilbrey with Ecothinkit.com and the Permaculture Podcast. I'm here today with Dr. Elaine Ingham. Dr. Ingham is regarded as one of the leading soil microbiologists worldwide and is known for her enthusiastic communication about the soil food web. Dr. Ingham is founder, president, and director of Research for Soil Food Web Incorporated, a business that grew out of her Oregon State University research program. Behind her user-friendly approach lies a wealth of knowledge gained from years of research into the organisms which make up the soil food web. Her goal is to translate this knowledge into actions that ensure a healthy food web that promotes plant growth and reduces reliance on inorganic chemicals. Lane also offers a pioneering vision of sustainable farming, improving our current soils to a healthier state without damaging any other ecosystem. In 2014, she and Dr. Carolyn Rollins founded the Environment Celebration Institute, which is a research farm in Northern California. Welcome, Elaine. Glad to be here. Thank you very much, David. To start out, I'd like to just uh, find out a little bit from you about how you came to explore the soil food web. When I uh, was, my whole life, I guess, actually, I go back usually to when I first started looking at soil through a microscope, and it was my father who was a veterinarian, professor at the University of Minnesota. And he would take me into the lab. You know, it's like, what do we do with all these kids? At least you can take one of them with you. And my dad would have me working in the laboratory. And one day he sat me down when I was six years old, I believe, and sat me down in a microscope and said, count the E. coli. And I did. You know, so he went through you know, how do you recognize what bacteria are and how do you distinguish E. coli from the other things that might be in there. And so to me, using a microscope was just like, well, of course you would do that. And so when I started my master's degree at Texas A&M in marine microbiology, I, of course, started looking at the insides of oysters using the microscope and found out that what we were seeing using plate counts, a classic microbiological approach, was only showing us less than 0.0000001% of the actual sets of microorganisms that were present in that system. So when you want to figure out why oysters won't grow, you have to actually look at the whole community. You can't be just looking at those organisms that live in a very specific set of foods in very specific conditions in a laboratory. You've got to look at everything. You have to understand all parts of the system and how it works. So, of course, then when I went to Colorado State University to work on my Ph.D., and my major professor wanted me to develop a method to be able to look at fungi growing in their natural habitats, well, of course, the microscope was going to be what I chose to use, and it's proven to be an outstanding tool 
Now, when we're at the university level, usually our equipment is very, very expensive, but we can be just as good looking at these organisms in the soil with very inexpensive microscopes. And so been trying to teach everybody how to use those microscopes so they can look to see at what the biology is. What are the communities? How does soil work? And it can't be soil if you don't have microorganisms in it. Depending on what you want to grow, you're going to have different amounts and different kinds of microorganisms because they will set the stage to allow your plant to get the nutrients that it requires to have the structure around its root system that it requires. You want to select for your crop and against the weeds, you better understand biology in your soil or you will always be beating your head against that particular problem. So um, how does this research, the Soil Food Web, differ from typical you know, research at a local extension office? We actually look at the biology in the soil. When I was first doing my PhD at Colorado State University, and part of your PhD work is to summarize the past information on these kinds of topics. And I went to all the books in the library and tried to read about you know what do bacteria and fungi and protozoa and nematodes and microarthropods, all these creatures in the soil, what do they do? And there's not a word about it. They'll go through the list of, or at that time, so back in the 1970s, you couldn't find any books that had information on what bacteria actually did in soil, other than the diseases, fungi, nematodes. It was always the bad guys, this focus on how to nuke the bad guys. So what we have to do is make certain that people understand is that most of the organisms in soil are actually beneficials. So when I would go to professors like in soil science or in botany or plant pathology or any one of the departments at the university and ask people, you know, professors who were well known in the world of soil science, what do these organisms do in the soil? And they would look at me like I was like, what a child you are. You, how can you be asking me that question? That's so, so stupid. Well, soil bioorganisms are just there. Don't worry your head about them, little lady, because they are just there. The, you know, we go out and we um, nuke them with something and they just start, they're back by the next day. They just come back in. Right. Like nature works that way. You set off an atomic bomb and how soon will human beings come back to that site and start living? It could be hundreds of years. So what are we doing in our agricultural systems? So starting to understand that no one really understood what the role or function of all of these organisms were in the soil. And so my PhD work, my husband's PhD work, was very much focused on trying to figure that out. And we put together that first diagram of all these interactions that we enumerated in the ecological monograph, showing how these organisms interact with each other and how they benefit the plant. How do you make certain that you're going to be growing the beneficial organisms and not the disease-causing organisms? And it's just so simple when you understand the requirements of the conditions to select for the beneficials and select against the bad guys. The beneficial organisms require oxygen, just like human beings. The bad guys 
require a lack of oxygen. You drop oxygen concentration below about six parts per million and the bad guys start growing because the beneficials, the things that would keep those bad guys from growing, the beneficials have to have air. No air, they can't take care of the bad guys. And yet that point is still contested by many of the older soil scientists out there that it, it just can't be that simple. But Mother Nature is simple in very clever and you know, just really elegant ways that nature imposes these control factors. Keep things aerobic. So you've got to keep your soil in an aerobic condition. That means you cannot compact it. You had better not be smashing your soil down so much that a compaction layer of more than 150 pounds per square inch of pressure be required to push a metal rod through that soil. Your roots can't move through that. They can't grow through that. It's anaerobic when you get your soil compacted more than 150 pounds per square inch. So, you know, starting to realize that most of the academic world had no clue what soil actually was. Despite the fact that Hans Jenny, one of the fathers of soil science, defined soil as having the mineral component, the sand, the silt, the clay, the rocks, the pebbles, parent material. It uh, has to have organic matter, which means you've got to have dead plant material decomposing. And inherent in that word decomposing is the presence of life that does the job of decomposing. So you have to have bacteria and fungi, protozoa, nematodes, microarthropods, all of those predators that eat the bacteria and fungi and release nutrients in a plant-available form. So it was a eye-opener to me when I realized that most people disregarded these organisms living in the soil and that they are the very thing that we have to depend on to do all the cleanup work and maintain clean soil and clean water and clean air. It's so astoundingly logical and simple the way you talk, except for you go into such detail that it, it just, I, I love uh, the way you talk about the soil. It begs the question, though, how did they define soil health? Right. They would define it as um, you, if you plant a plant in it, the plant grows. Okay, but what, what kind of plant are we talking about? If you're talking about weeds, uh, okay, so the soil's healthy if weeds are growing in it? No. You know, they meant most agricultural people meant the crop that you care about. But, of course, you know, they put the crop in. And then up come all these weeds. And if they didn't knock those weedy species back using herbicides, then <laughs> their crop would fail and all they would be would be growing weeds. Well, and then you get all these diseases on those crops. So that's not a healthy system. And yet they kind of put blinders on their eyeballs that the fact that you had to go out and constantly apply toxic chemicals to kill off everything that you didn't want as long as you were growing a plant and getting yield, that was somehow a, a healthy system, which is just nuts. We have to be able to manage the weeds just like nature manages weeds. You know, go out into your favorite highly productive grassland system or go out into a place where Mother Nature is growing a bumper crop of strawberries or uh, you've got a healthy 
set of trees or blueberries or, you know, you know, they're where the plants are producing the way they're supposed to out in the real world. And nobody's out there putting on inorganic fertilizers or pesticides or tilling the soil or all of those things we do to try to grow our crops. Why doesn't that inform the agricultural people, the soil scientists, that what they're doing is crazy? It's just insane that they keep applying herbicides in the expectation that they're going to kill all the weeds. And then the next thing you know, the next crop of weeds are coming up. Isn't that the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results? Get a clue, guys. So we have to change what we're doing. Okay, but now what's the change? We have to pay attention to the biology in the soil. It's just like with human beings. You've got to pay attention to the biology in your digestive system. Because if you destroy that you are going to have incredible amounts of problems, you know, and we've got all these digestive system problems that everybody's suffering with right now from two-year-olds all the way on up. And it's all about the fact that we understand almost nothing about the microbiology in our digestive systems. Well, we understand even less about the soil biology than we do about human gut microflora. We have to understand the soil microflora. Where do your gut microflora come from? The soil. You have to be eating plant material that has all these beneficial organisms on it. That's how you replenish all the organisms in your digestive system. Where else would they come from? They just, what, magically appear? Or everybody's got to go around getting fecal transplants from some other human being? Well, how do you know if their gut microflora is what you want? You've got to be eating plants that are growing in systems that you don't have to put on pesticides. You don't have to use fungicides. You don't have to be using um, insecticides. You don't have to be using inorganic fertilizers. You don't have to be applying herbicides. If the soil's healthy, that soil is set up to grow the plant that you want. And so we've got to get this understanding out to people that it's all about life, not dead dirt it's living soil. It's interesting that conventional agriculture is obviously it's an attack in a way on the earth and the health of of the planet, not only the soil, but all of the connected ecosystems, water and et cetera, the oceans. However, um, it's also atmosphere, right? Sorry, my brain froze there. It's also an attack on the human, the human being. I mean, the gut, you know, the, the connection between the soil microbiome and the gut is, it's amazing once you're aware of it, but you realize that conventional agriculture is also attacking that, which is obviously, uh, there's a very direct link to that and the incredible cost of healthcare in the Western world, um, where, you know, the idea of food as medicine is really, it's really true. And we're never going to solve the insurance issue in America until you actually solve how to, how to create healthy humans to begin with. Right. It ha- we have to put all of our focus on prevention of these problems. And you prevent all of these problems by living in a healthy environment. Well, we are living in one of the most unhealthy environments on this planet. And yet we think we're such this first world country. You now it's like, get a clue. Yeah, we need to help people in third world countries to overcome the same problems. But the only way we're going to solve everyone's problem is to really start understanding 
the role and function that we as human beings are supposed to play. And we're the gardeners of this planet. We're the ones who are supposed to be protecting. We should understand. God gave us the brains to understand how all everything else works. And we need to maintain it. It should be up to us to keep it a sustainable system. So we got to start in on our role and function of having permaculture. And acknowledging and recognizing that we are one of the most important keystone species. <laughs> there's, a, there's a responsibility that goes with that. Right. But, you know, what, what organism goes first if the whole structure below the keystone is falling apart? The keystone drops out of the system first. So if we don't do our function, if we don't do what we're supposed to do, we're going to be replaced. Nature will replace us with something else. We are not the species that Mother Nature has to have. She'll put something else in, in that place. It'll take her a while. You know, don't fuzz. Don't worry. Yeah, 100 million years. Yeah, it's a drop in the bucket. It's a second in her lifespan. But for human beings, it's everything. We're destroying ourselves. And so if we don't wake up and smell the roses, human beings don't have to be on this planet. We need Mother Nature. Mother Nature doesn't need us. Yes. So first, of, I have a kind of a two-part question. First, when would you, historically, when would you place the sort of beginning of industrial agriculture in the systems we're, we're critiquing today? Gosh, industrial. Well, you have, for it to be truly industrial, you have to have big equipment. So it's probably the advent of the tractor. You know, thank you, John Deere. Actually invented in Australia and imported to this country. So big equipment with engines where you can more easily go about the process of destroying your soil. Every time you plow, every time you till, you're killing at least 50% of the organisms in that soil. And unfortunately, what comes back more rapidly are those organisms that like disturbed conditions, those very early successional species, which tend to be disease and pests and weeds. You know, everything on this planet has to go through. Once upon a time, it went through the weed stage of plant succession. It all went through it because you have to go through that stage of succession in order to get to the next one, which is early successional grasses and things like the brassicas, the mustards, the kale, and the coal crops. And then the soil has to develop, the life in the soil has to develop a little bit more, and now you start growing more of the meadow species, and including most of our vegetables and herbs, uh, especially the annual herbs and annual vegetables. And, you know, succession steps up and goes through step-by-step step to old-growth forest. So... When we go in and we massively and incredibly disturb our soil, we're going backwards in succession. And then Mother Nature starts the process of succession all over again. But there's where you get the weed problem. Unless you do something to jumpstart the biology in your soil and get beyond that weed stage of life immediately within a day, you're going to suffer through the weed stage of life. And because they didn't understand that, especially in industrial agriculture, where it's so easy to go out and put on a herbicide, where it's so easy to go out and till again. And again, you're going backwards, always going backwards. 
Well, they tilled back in since since the beginning of agriculture. It's really what defines agriculture. You're disturbing the soil in order to wipe out all the other plants and put in the seed of the plants that you want to grow, that you want that food from. And so that's agriculture. Right from the very beginning, we were moving things backwards. But at the beginning of agriculture, it's so difficult and it's so much work to take a stick and push a furrow in hard ground, put your seeds in there and let them grow, that you don't disturb that soil very much. You only disturb it once a year. So that whole year, everything gets to come back and reestablish and so the plants do pretty well. So it's not until we've disturbed and disturbed and disturbed that those soils that you start th- seeing things like people with plowshares, wooden or metal, being pulled by animals. And the human being was attached to the system because the human being had to keep the animals going in a straight row. <laughs> and the human being had to physically push down on that plow so it stayed at that even depth so you could drop the seeds in and grow your crops in slightly larger acreage. Well, a single person can't till very much in the course of a day. So, you know, people's farms were half an acre, an acre in size. Um, and so you kept track of that area pretty well. And if things weren't going well, you would come along with some organic matter. You'd come out along with some spoiled fish or you'd come along with some spoiled greens, some other amendment going into that soil. Well, as we develop industrial agriculture, you now when we came back from World War I and World War II, what people were trying to deal with was the leftover munitions. Because in World War II, we dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and it ended the war suddenly. Full two years worth of war wasn't fought because the fear that those atomic bombs instilled in the people we were opposing in World War II. So the munitions manufacturers had two years stockpile of explosives, gunpowder, all that good stuff. And what do you do with it? Somebody noticed that when you threw it out onto a field, try to get rid of it by spreading it on all the empty lots in New York City or Detroit or, you know, wherever. And they noticed that it killed all the plants. So they started advertising it as an herbicide. Kill the weeds. Get out there and promote the growth of your crop plants that need high levels of nitrate. Well, nitrate also helps the weeds out. So it's kind of, it's an interesting kind of conundrum the way they worked that out. It convinced all the farmers to buy these fertilizers now, these uh, herbicide materials, and made it a, you know, you go back and you, and you look at the advertisements of that time in the late 1940s and the early 1950s, the advertisements were farmers had to do their patriotic duty of feeding everybody in this country. And the only way you could do that was to put on these inorganic fertilizers to use these toxic chemicals to kill the weeds. 
And so farmers challenged with being true patriots rose up to the, uh, you know, the suggestion that they had to use these chemicals because it was the only way that they could possibly feed everybody coming back from the war. So it becomes a kind of trap, a, a patriotic trap that you have to use these approaches. And most of the farmers adopted these practices. It's astounding. I mean, you can see on a certain level how people could accept that back then, what, 60, 70 years ago. But the fact that it's still one of the the, the main fallacies that is put forward by conventional agriculture is astounding. That anyone could still actually swallow that with a, a straight face. Yeah, I, I had a friend who was just at an agricultural meeting in Virginia. And he said, you know, he walked in because he understands the biological approach and he kind of expected to hear the whole soil health thing. And the whole entire conference was just these old soil scientists, these professors that are, thank goodness, not far from retirement, that were, were poo-pooing the whole idea that biology or that the soil health measurement, this is just ridiculous because if you've got a problem, you just go out and put on these toxic chemicals and you deal with your problem right here and now and you don't have any more problems. So explain what's going on in the Gulf of Mexico where we have that... Gosh, I think it's like up to 300 square miles dead zone now in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. What happens when that dead zone hits the shorelines? Dead. Nothing left growing and impossible. What happens is all of the accumulated toxic chemicals that we've been pouring on and they've been leaching out comes up the Mississippi or comes up into any of your rivers or lakes and streams. How can you drink that water? How could you put that water on your agricultural land and hope to grow anything? And I'm afraid by the time it gets to be that point where there is no clean water left on this planet and we finally go into frenzy mode, it's too late. The warnings have been out there in front of us for, well, ever since the 1960s, 1970s. It's People have been warning us and we just don't want to pay attention. So, yeah, it's really sad when you run into those people that because their whole entire life... They've been teaching students to use the toxic chemical approach. And if they admitted that the biological approach was actually the correct approach, it was actually right, they've taught students their whole entire life a lie. Their whole entire life's work has been a lie. Hard to take, isn't it? So they're adamantly stuck in the toxic chemical approach. You see something out there that you don't want, you nuke it. You kill it. Well, you can't kill just the insects that are delivering the message to you from Mother Nature saying, there's something terribly wrong with your soil. There's something really wrong here and you need to fix it. Oh, nope. Instead, we're going to kill the messenger. We don't want to know. Mother Nature is talking to us and we don't want to listen to it. And so... The problems just get worse and worse. Notice that the amount of fertilizers that people have to use have gone up and up and up in quantity. The toxicity of the pesticides, the insecticides, the herbicides have gone up and up and up in toxicity. And so we're absolutely trying to grow plants in something that is dirt. There is no life. And so we're destroying water quality faster and faster. Now, if we just stopped using pesticides overnight, that's great. But is there any remediation for all of that, especially that water in the 
in the ocean? Like, how do we, if you're going to actively start to try and restore that, are there any methods aside from hundreds and thousands of years of the ecosystem kind of flowing in its its national natural cycles? That's more a question for you know folks who deal with with remediation of those big cesspools that we're turning our oceans into. I'm sure it's a biological approach. You know, if somebody forced me to have to deal with that right now, I would just make a massive amount of compost and run all of that water through that compost. Because the chemical reactions that are going to occur with all of that out there in the Gulf of Mexico would be to tie it up on the surfaces of the organic matter. We could make biochar and filter all of that stuff through the biochar and let the organisms that we purposely put into the biochar tie up all those toxic chemicals so that what comes out the other side of sieving it through our compost biochar mixed together would be clean water coming out the bottom. But that's the only way to to clean that up, especially the gamish, the horrible mixture of all kinds of toxic materials in that dead zone. You got to run it through something that's going to tie it up. Mother Nature has been following that approach from the very beginning, from when life first started on this planet. The microorganisms are a really great way to tie up all those toxic chemicals and decompose them. So you've got to make certain that you're going into the right habitats and you're getting those microorganisms that can deal with that level of toxicity. But they're out there. They exist. We need to stop destroying them. If we ever want to have our cleanup crews do the work for us, we have to stop destroying them. But think about the fact that in molten lava, there are active, living, growing bacteria and fungi. They live in those conditions. So if Mother Nature has got organisms that can grow in molten lava, and I always think of that now as Kilauea is happily, you know, <laughs> exploding, and all that lava is coming up, it's like those are microorganisms in there, and they're spreading across the surface of the planet. She can have organisms that grow in the most horrific conditions. We just have to find the ones that will do the work that we need to have done. We don't have to genetically engineer them. We don't have to pay some company that wants to, you know, put a patent on these organisms that they genetically engineer. The organisms that will do the work on anything we want are already out there. We just have to go find them and then start growing them and apply them in the conditions that they all work. That was a great answer for a question that you initially said. <laughs> Talk to the radiation experts. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, the specifics are going to be, you know, probably up to somebody other than me. But the fact is we can't do it. No, but that really answered it well. That was excellent. And um, <laughs> thank you for that. So are there any thought leaders that inf have informed your work? I think specifically of, you know, talking about the system that you came up against when you began your studies back in the 60s and 70s and the conventional knowledge at the time was rather dark. Obviously, there's people previous to the industrial area that had some understanding for soil health. <laughs> so, so, so who, uh, like pre-1950, uh, has informed or inspired your work? Yeah, well, um, it's like when I was at 
Texas A&M working on my master's degree in marine microbiology. And then I decided that, you know, there's no money in marine microbiology. So really, if I wanted to stay alive, I probably had to switch to something where there was actually some money. And so uh, I was taken on as a graduate student at Colorado State University. And the group that was at Colorado State University at the Natural Resource Ecology Lab and my major professor, Donald Klein, was a part of that group. They're the ones who made me go, oh, wow, you know, these organisms do the work of eating the exudates coming out of the root systems of the plant. And the plant, of course, is going to put out the foods that will grow, the organisms who will do what the plant wants. And so the plant is directing this particular set of species of bacteria or fungi to make the enzymes to do the work of pulling nutrients out of the crystalline structure of the sand, the silt, the clay, the rocks, the pebbles, the things that most people disregard as having any nutrients in them. When in fact, there is no soil on this planet that lacks the nutrients to grow plants. There are enough nutrients in beach sand to grow plants. It's just that you got to make them available to the plants. And oh, yeah, you got the problem with salt water, but the nutrients are present in those materials. Every soil that we look at, you've got all the nutrients. Why are you adding inorganic fertilizers? Because you've killed the organisms. So if you put a plant in your soil and you can't grow it, it won't grow. People will say, oh, you've got poor soil. You're going to have to pour on all these soluble nutrients. No, no, no. What Mother Nature is trying to tell you is that you don't have the biology in that soil. And so the people I was, that group at the Natural Resource Ecology Lab, like David Coleman, Pat Reed, Vern Cole, Bill Hunt, that whole group was, uh, and of course, my major professor, Don Klein, they were the person that really helped me start to grasp all this. And then the work that my husband did for his PhD, where we actually put together systems that had just bacteria or just fungi or just protozoa or just nematodes, put a wheat seedling in the container and (laughs) surprise, they all die because there's no nutrient cycling going on. You not only have to have the bacteria and fungi, you've got to have the protozoa, the nematodes, microarthropods, earthworms, things like that, that eat the bacteria and fungi. And because the nutrient concentrations of all nutrients, not just nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, not just the big guys, the macronutrients, but all of the nutrients that your plant will require are going to be released in properly balanced ratios for the plant you want to grow. So you've got to have that whole food web present and functioning to make the nutrients available to your plant right at the root system. You don't have to worry about the silliness that all soil scientists have to go through of calculating how rapidly soluble nutrients will move from a foot away into your plant. Because if you've got the biology in your root zone, biology present in your soil, the nutrients are presented to your plant right at the root surface and your plant doesn't have to expend any energy to get those nutrients. And they're in proper balances. So that thought group, all the understanding of uh, you know, how does biology build soil structure, how does biology maintain airflow and water movement deeper and deeper and deeper down into the soil. And I just had a question earlier this morning from somebody working in carbon sequestration that was uh, 
you can't possibly sequester all the carbon in the atmosphere back into the soil because their you know soil doesn't go that deep what how deep down does soil go uh well three inches uh boy you've been listening to the usda haven't you because their attitude is soil only goes a very short depth if you go back to literature in the USDA back in the 1960s and 1970s, they said soil was not any deeper than four to six inches. And that's as far down as soil went. When in fact, when you understand how far down root systems can go, and you look at old growth forest like a Douglas fir, the root systems on Douglas fir can easily go down 250 feet. So if we can put carbon back into the soil all the way down to 250 feet, how rapidly can we take all that CO2 in the atmosphere and put it back in the soil? We just have to stop killing everything in that soil. We have to stop turning our soil into dirt. And so that group back at Colorado State University was really that core group that together we brainstormed and argued and discussed and some of the best memories of my life is sitting in the lunchroom with all these other great minds and hashing out the experiments to show exactly what it is. What do bacteria do in soil? What do fungi? And fungi and bacteria compete with each other. So how can we have soils that are fungal dominated and soils that are bacterial dominated? How does that work? What are the controls? What's How does... How does nature figure this out? And it's just so elegant the way nature has structured the living systems around us. It's so simple. And yet when you get down into the minutiae, golly, it is so complex trying to figure out why and how things work. But that's where it all started. The more I learn, the more fascinating and astounding it is and it's just such an elegant beautiful system one of the things that happened to me shortly after being introduced to permaculture is i started thinking about how you apply these ideas to social and economic systems and increasingly i'm thinking about soil as a as a great picture and analogy for how we can create regenerative and self-sustaining social and economic systems so I'd love to hear your thoughts on sort of the connection between the soil and, and these systems we live in and what a, what a healthy social biome <laughs> looks like. Everyone should have to grow a significant proportion of their own food. It doesn't have to, you know, like if you don't really like animals, okay, you're, you're not going to concentrate on the animal part of the system. You can grow the veggies and the fruit, but everyone should have to learn how to grow things. Everyone should have to learn how to make compost. Just so, you know, I always think like if a, the cataclysm happens and society does start to break down, you have to know how to grow your own food or you're just going to be one more dead body. So for, to safeguard yourself and your family, you really need to know these things. So Get out there, and even if the only place you have to grow plants are in window boxes or out on your balcony in your apartment, you still should be doing that so you understand how these systems work and what are the messages that Mother Nature might be sending you and make certain then that you know how to interpret those messages. Mother Nature doesn't speak English, but 
she very clearly communicates to us on a daily basis about the health of the plants or the animals that we're raising so that we can eat them and survive. So, yeah, I think one of the things that in every culture, you know, every society, we need to have that connection very clearly back to the soil, back to an understanding of how these systems function. It gives you a really good idea of what you need to be doing with your gut microflora. How are you going to stay healthy as a human being if you don't have the right kinds of microorganisms coming into your body? And when you've been sick, if you get an infection, you know, you get pneumonia for some reason or somehow, and we have to give you an antibiotic because you weren't healthy enough to be able to resist this then how are we going to get the biology back into your digestive system, back onto all of the surfaces of your body, inside and out, to get you back into a condition of health? And so you need to know that. You need to know that you need to be making good compost, and you make a compost extract or a compost tea from that compost, and you go take it and put it in your bath water because you got to get the whole outside of your body recolonized with these good organisms you need to have all of the food that you eat with these sets of microorganisms on the surfaces so that it replenishes all of that biology in your digestive system. So I'm not quite sure then probably what else you might want me to talk about when you talk about a vast, you know, we could go on for weeks and months and years talking about the cultural systems and how we could tie what we do in our cultures back into how important life in the soil actually is. I think one thing is the thought process that you sort of laid out for us in the beginning of our conversation of the approaches to problems. So conventional agriculture's approach is just attack the problem with pesticides and herbicides and it'll go away. If it moves, um, kill it. Right. <laughs> uh, whereas a healthy soil uh, perspective, a whole systems perspective, a permaculture perspective says what's going on in that entire environment, uh, what's creating a situation where there's a lot of weeds. Oh, there's weeds because the conditions in the soil are, are making the conducive to that. And you can actually grow soil, develop soil that has nutrients that make it not a happy place for weeds to be. So if you take that process of thought and you apply it to political systems, for instance, how we govern ourselves, that would, I think that would change a lot <laughs> about how we approach things. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to think about that one for a while. You know, and I think if, if more people understood the living soil beneath their feet, it gives you time to meditate. Being out there communing with the creatures growing on and in on your plants and inside the soil. You spend a little bit more time understanding the little things on the planet. Each individual bacterium is the size of one, it's a one micrometer, one millionth of a yardstick in size. And individually, that one little bacterium may not seem so important. But the fact that in a gram, a teaspoon of your soil, of a good, healthy soil, there are somewhere around 600 to 1,000 million individual bacteria. And there are 75,000 different species of bacteria. And then you have the same biomass, typically, of fungal 
tissue in that one teaspoon of soil, and you've got another 25,000 species of fungi. And then you have protozoa, and then you have nematodes, and then you have microarthropods, and then you've got earthworms, and they're, you know, all of that within one teaspoon. And they're all managing to live together in pretty good harmony. We're not losing any of the species of the organisms. That diversity is critical for you to be able to grow all of the diversity of plants that you want to have. So let's start designing our human civilization after the same approach where everyone understands and values that kind of diversity. So 75,000 species, have we identified and named all of them? Or we just know that there are that many. Yeah. Using DNA analysis, people can come up with how many unique DNA sequences are there present in a gram of soil. And in in Oregon, we've got, you know, this 75,000 species, but if you go in, go to um, Southern California, it's a whole different 75,000 species of bacteria. If you go to Mississippi, all different. As soon as conditions start changing significantly, hotter in the summer, more humid in the summer, you got more rainfall, less rainfall, hot, cold, wet, dry, all of those things work to cause a different set of species of microorganisms to be present. So if you went around the world, it's been estimated by the people at the Center for Microbial Ecology at Michigan State University, it's been estimated that we have millions of different species of bacteria. We have not even begun to catalog them. You know, we went down to the deep sea rifts and went, surprise, guess what? The bottom of the ocean is not sterile. It is not devoid of life. It is teeming with life. And here comes along a couple more million different species of bacteria. We've only begun to look. The Bible of bacteriology lists all the known species of bacteria that human beings have identified and stuck names on, where we can grow them in laboratory conditions. And that Bible of bacteriology lists something just a little bit under 5,000 species. That tells you something right there. Exhibit A of our social systems, okay, and educational systems. My goodness. Our uh, ignorance is astounding. And we we have such an attitude about we are the lords of creation, you know, manifest destiny. God put us on this planet to rule the lower species. Oh, get off the... That's clearly an inaccurate assumption, seeing that by doing that over the last 150 years or 200, whatever it is, we're succeeding in destroying the planet for others and ourselves. So, yeah, I I had a moment uh, a couple of years ago thinking about Manifest Destiny and like, Mike, really? How, how, (laughs) How could you, especially, especially Christians, how could they like... How could that be a plausible idea? So anyway, I digress. So um, are there... Let's not get into religion because that can get really, whoa. Human beings are so arrogant. It's actually astounding that Mother Nature hasn't just popped us off the surface of the earth already because we just do things with such blinders and with just such horrific ignorance of what we're doing. Because of that, it's incredibly powerful when someone does step forward with humility 
you know, the, uh, I look forward to the day when one of these uh, professors that you mentioned earlier who've taught all their lives about these destructive ways of, of doing things says, what I've been teaching my whole life is wrong. Here's the way to go. It's sure to happen, right? I hope so. I would love to be um, on the receiving end of some of those missives that would come out just to, could you please email every one of the students that you've taught that, sorry, I was dead wrong and really you should be paying attention to this whole new way of thinking because it's the only way to save the planet or save the planet for human beings. So um, are there ways that people can get involved with this kind of research and be citizen scientists? Absolutely. And basically what you need is a microscope so you can be looking at this biology in your soil. Um, we have online courses where we, the life in the soil class, it's, I think it's something like uh, 35 lectures or something like that. So 35, 45 minute lectures. So it's not really as horrible as it sounds. Um, and I hope I'm fairly entertaining when I talk so that it's not a bunch of boring tables of data and we did this experiment and this is how we put it together and here's our methods and see all the little tables and it means that the sun rises in the west and sets in the east. <laughs> so, um, whoops, it's the other way around. Um, <laughs> so it's uh, hopefully pretty interesting for people, but we go through all of the information that we've been discovering by starting to understand and really looking into what the different assemblages of microorganisms are in different systems when you want to grow this kind of plant or that kind of plant. You don't really like weeds? Well, then stop putting on nitrate fertilizer, for goodness sake, because that is what's causing a great deal of your weed problem. Exit those inorganic fertilizers, get the biology back into the soil, start improving that fungal biomass, and weeds cannot grow under a good amount of fungi present in your soil, beneficial fungi present in your soil, because they select against the weedy species and for the later successional species. So what plant do you want to grow? Get your balance of fungi to bacteria, protozoa, nematodes, right? Get it correct. So if, if I'm having problems growing a certain kind of a vegetable, then um, would I learn or is there a way to research what micro organisms need to be present to grow, like cucumbers, for instance? Yeah, and, and we already have a pretty good idea about what different kinds of plants, especially vegetables, uh, row crops, shrubs, berries, and orchard kinds of trees, a lot of time spent, and learning exactly what kind of biology you want to put back into those systems to make certain that you will have no weeds ever. Let the weeds be the weak, wimpy, unhappy little things, and your crop plants are going to be bountiful. And how do you deal with, in the transition from dirt back into soil, what happens if you're getting wilt or blight or you've got these kinds of miners or mites or thrips or what is Mother Nature really trying to tell you with the advent of some visible problem organisms and therefore you know what you have to replenish, what is still lacking, um, you're in transition. So don't be so don't be surprised that you're going to have a few of these. And then you don't quite have the biology that's needed to prevent this problem. So what do you do to get the biology back into the system? So the life in the soil class, we go through all the concepts that you need to know. And then we have a, a class that is just on making compost 
and we go through lots of different systems, try to get the principles explained, and then a lot of hands-on practical information in the course. So the first four hours are the theoretical information, what you expect, what you ought, ought to be doing, what are your starting materials, recipes, and then where we actually, you know, in front of the camera, put compost piles together, let's put worm compost, let's do static compost, let's show you how you do all of these things and what are the measurements that you're making. So when you're making your compost, you want to be trying your particular starting materials, which are, surprise, different than mine here in Oregon or different from what we are doing down in California. If you live in a different part of the world, you're going to have different plant species. So you're going to have to do a little bit of trial and error for yourself to figure out exactly what your recipe is going to be given your starting materials, and that's where your microscope comes in handy. Are you trying to make the compost that is going to grow asparagus, or are you trying to make a compost that's going to grow corn, or cranberries, or blueberries, or apples, or, you know, what are you trying to grow? We've got to try to make certain that your compost is going to support those plants that you want to grow and bring them along to this place of healthiness where no pests no diseases no problems are occurring and then the next class is well what if you don't want to be putting solid compost out on everything Um, you want to be able to spray it so how do you make compost extract because you you have a choice you can do one or the other or do you have a lot of foliar diseases especially in the first year of transition You'll typically have to be applying compost teas where we want the organisms very active, growing very rapidly, so they make the glues around their bodies to stick themselves to the surfaces of your leaves and protect the above-ground part of your plant as well as if you're injecting that into the ground, like a compost extract going into the ground, those organisms are growing very densely around the root systems of your plants and they're protecting against the diseases and pests below ground so we have then and then the microscope course where we can teach you through an online course how to use the microscope it's you know we direct you to places where you can buy the appropriate microscopes they you know generally cost like 200 to 250 dollars and you will only have to buy one in your lifetime So it's a good investment given what you can discover. And then you're going to make certain that you're fine-tuning your biology for the plants, for the cultivars that you want to grow. And so they will grow on their own. Really, the only thing you should have to do is to put a furrow in, drop your seeds in, maybe along with a little bit of compost extract or compost close up the furrow and let them grow we always like to encourage people to either put mulch layers on except see my point of view about mulch layers is i've got to be doing that once or twice a year and that's a lot of work to put down a a mulch layer why not let mother nature do this step let's seed in short low growing cover plants so ground covers if you will that have nice deep root systems and they will keep all the best biology growing and active so that when I put my seeds in of my annual plants, my veggies and such, 
all the microorganisms that my plants require are going to be active and growing and ready to benefit my crop plants the instant that seed germinates and starts to grow. So make certain that you're maintaining all that biology in your soil by putting in these short, low-growing perennial ground covers. That means you don't have to keep replenishing that year after year after year. See, I am the world's laziest gardener. <laughs> Me too. So can you grow all of all that you need for to replace the use of mulch? Yes. So I've been starting to experiment with cover crops um, here recently. And uh, however, they're more of an annual type of thing that you kind of chop in place or just pull up and lay down as a mulch. So what are some examples of some perennial um, cover crops? There's just a whole herd of them. And one of my favorites for the U.S. is uh, dicondra. It only grows maybe one to three inches tall. And it moves out, covers all of the surface in your garden pretty rapidly. So you get the dichondra seed. I usually mix the dichondra with like a isotoma or, oh gosh, there's, there's just a whole herd of them. Creeping lavender, creeping thyme. Different, there's a boatload of different isotomas. There's, gosh, dang it, I just dug up a bunch of them from my garden today. Can't remember all of them, but they're on our website. So okay, great. Environmentcelebration.com, you know, all one word, no capitals. Go look at our you know, cover plants or on the Soil Food Web website. We It's also some of that information is on the soilfoodweb.com website. So lots of information on both of the websites for additional information. And uh, on the Environment Celebration website, Carol, Dr. Rollins, my partner in, <laughs> in, my partner in crime, she uh, has put up some of the ordering information. Where do you find these kinds of seeds in high quantities at uh, very reasonable prices? That's really helpful. Yeah. It can sometimes get to be fun when we haven't yet kind of expanded the seeds being produced. And it's going to cost you, you know, $20 for 50 seeds. You're not going to be doing many acres with that. But why not be mixing all of these different seeds together or have different spots on your own property where you're growing up some of these different rarer species, you know, things that are pretty cute little flowering things, but there's not a huge market for it. Start growing your own and start making your own mixes and selling them to your neighbors. Because all of a sudden, they don't have to be out there constantly watering in order to keep their plants alive or constantly having to put out mulch layers to protect that surface so they don't have to water so much. You get these cover plants on the surface of your soil, and you do not have the evaporation off your soil surfaces. So like on the news at night, they'll often late summer say, well, you know, the evaporative transpiration today was you know 1.5 inches and that means you have to put 1.5 inches of water back into your lawn in order to keep it green and happy and healthy looking whoa who can afford that much water so instead you know cover plants so that they're protecting that soil surface and even your grass won't respire as much water so you can really produce some magnificent water savings we work with grapevine growers, uh, grape growers, both table grapes and wine grape growers in Australia, for example. When we were doing experiments with uh, the grape exchange, they showed that by putting these understory, these ground covers onto the soil surface, 
they reduced water use by 70%. So all of a sudden they could actually grow grape crops through the drought years that they were having in Australia for, you know, it's like been like 30 years. Really serious problems with drought in that part of the world. But all of a sudden they could start growing their table grapes wherever they wanted to again in the eastern part of Australia. So we have examples of all of these improvements that are possible, all the benefits that are possible. And so we go through all of those benefits. I go through and talk about a lot of examples in the online classes of how people have approached their ecosystems, their agricultural ecosystems, and what exactly were the steps. So I like to go through landscape. We have a a lot of dairy farm examples, grasslands, pastures, a lot of vegetable growers, um, a lot of orchards and berry examples that we go through. And yeah, we can help anybody who's growing a plant. We can probably help them to grow it less expensively, less time intensive, and absolutely no need for inorganic fertilizers or pesticides at all. Well, and talking about just the, the, the basic idea you talked about of everyone learning how to garden, having this deeper knowledge of how all of these, all these things work and connect is a very valuable, I would say, wisdom that you can pass on to your children and grandchildren and, and so on. It's such a, uh, for one thing, it's, a, it's fascinating and fun, but as we study and learn about these natural systems, and how elegant they are, I think that sort of creates a ferment in the mind to be able to think about how we re- recreate social and economic systems as well. So there's my answer <laughs> to my question about social and economic systems. <laughs> right. Start with really getting an in-depth knowledge of, of natural systems, and then it builds on that. You go back 200 years ago, everyone knew how to compost. Everyone. Because usually as a child, no matter whether you lived in the city or you lived in a town or you lived out on a farm in the country, everybody had to deal with their waste material. And so everyone had a composting pile. And, you know, maybe you lived in one room in an apartment building, but everyone contributed to the way the composting pile that was out in the back of the building. And that compost material was either sold or they used it to put in a small garden in the back. So everybody knew. They, they didn't have to write it down. Go back to Mendel's uh, writings about the genetics experiments that he was doing with the peas. He talked about the compost that he made to grow those peas and the compost teas that he made to prevent diseases and pests from wiping out his pea crop. And so... Everyone knew 200 years ago or, you know, earlier in the existence of human beings, everyone in every civilization knew how to compost. But we've all forgotten. I remember as a child going out to an agricultural field where my parents had a garden and learning about composting and learning, you know, how to grow things. But the education got cut off. It was... You know, I was born in 1952, so it was probably 1957, 1958, when all of that stopped. My parents stopped with the garden. And so my education on that, that 
information was cut short. I didn't learn the whole system. I've had to reinvent the how to do composting. So people didn't write it down. It was just such an everyday thing. So it was part of our heritage in everybody's family growing up. But we lost that information from the 1960s onwards. Nobody taught their children that information. Nobody continued making compost. And so we've gotten a really bizarre idea about what compost is. If you go out to one of the municipal composting operations where you live, they will advertise this stuff as being compost. And it's not. It's putrefied organic matter. And most of the time, if you you put that stuff straight onto your plants, you would kill your plants because it's anaerobic. It's making some very toxic materials that will kill your plant. And it's growing a boatload of disease-causing organisms in it. It's not what you want to put anywhere near your plant. You'd have to go through and recompost it correctly in order to turn it into something that would contain the organisms that you need to have. So get that microscope out there and prove it to yourself that that stuff is stuff. It's not compost. So it's sad that in the course of you know, 60 years, 70 years, most people in the whole continent of the United States, North America, have forgotten this um, information that was commonplace 60, 70 years ago. Well, and now we have the added fun of being able to look at these organisms in microscopes and really learn more details about what's going on there. So that's uh, that's a great project to do with your kids and uh, <laughs> fun for the whole family for the rest of your life. So that's good. I was encouraged to hear that you can have one microscope for the rest of your life as well. That's that's great. Not many prod- products you can buy these days that'll last that long. As you were speaking about how there's 75,000 microorganisms and 25,000 of this other type and species species. Thank you. I knew I was saying that incorrectly. And if you travel a hundred miles or, or 500 miles, it's a whole different set of, of organisms. Um, that made me think about bioregionalism. So can you talk a little bit about the connection between soil health and bioregionalism? As conditions change. You're going to have to get a different set of microorganisms. You make compost here where you're going to be growing your plant. Um, and if you're going up and across the mountains and now you're in a different climate, you know, the temperature fluctuations through the year are different. The moisture is different. It's falling at different times of year. Plants are completely different. There is here. You're going to have to be making compost in both places. Uh, you know, a lot of people call us up in California and say, can't we buy some of your compost? Because I've heard it's really good stuff. I have you know, friends in California that show me pictures of here's what the inorganic fertilizer grew and here's what the compost grew. And it's like tenfold difference in production. So we want to buy some of your compost. Okay, where do you, where do you live? Massachusetts. No, no, because organisms adapted to California cannot possibly make it through a cold, frigid winter like you have in Massachusetts. Your summertime is different than ours as well. Our microorganisms are used to drought. Um, We have a very Mediterranean climate in California. And so the organisms we have cannot tolerate the extended wet 
humid conditions in the eastern part of the United States. So you can't be carrying compost all over from one place to another. You have to make local indigenous species of organisms that are already adapted to that habitat, that climate. Mother Nature has been working for the last four billion years to get those organisms adapted to that climate and those conditions. So we got to understand that and um, make certain we're putting the local indigenous species back into our soil. How do we make sure that the good ones, aerobic conditions, don't want to have those anaerobic compacted problems that will not do our plants any good. It's going to cause disease. It's going to cause problems and you aren't going to get the yields that you want to get. And your food won't taste good because what is it that causes flavor in food? It's the proper balance of all the nutrients that the plant is happily converted into all these different kinds of organic compounds. And that's the flavor that you taste. You want to have a tomato that actually tastes like a tomato. And it always surprises me when kids who have never had a good tomato their whole entire life. And you'll hand them a tomato and they'll go, oh, I don't like tomatoes. Tomatoes, they taste bad. Don't want to eat that. Well, just try a bite of this one. And they look at you like oh, adults. And they'll take a bite and, and just that surprised look that comes over their face of, I've never tasted anything like this in my whole entire life. And it's yummy. And they eat the tomato. And then they ask for another one. This from a kid who refused to eat tomatoes because they tasted so bad. We've got to get the nutrition back into our food. So how do you do that? You have to get the biology in the soil. It has to be indigenous, local things that will do what the plant requires of it and feed that plant with all the nutrients that it requires. Thank you so much. I learned and was fascinated and <laughs> really enjoyed this conversation as I always do when I, when I listen to you in various forms. Uh, the other thing about growing your own vegetables is my kids will eat pretty much anything I'll grow in the garden, but I could have the same thing from the grocery store and they won't eat it. So by virtue of it coming out of your own soil in your backyard, you may be able to get your kids to eat more healthy without trying. Um, right. So. Yeah. Without having to force it down them. Well, because, you know, kids, they've got good taste buds and if it's garbage, they don't want to eat it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, I really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed uh, your thoughts. So I will put in the show notes, the web addresses that you mentioned previously, and um, we'll also put in there, there is a discount code. So if you go through permaculture podcast is the, is the code, then you'll get a discount on the courses as well. Thank you very much. Any, any parting thoughts you'd like to leave with us, Elaine? Well, you know, I, I think that uh, permaculture and life in the soil go hand in hand. What are the best ways to set up the conditions that the indigenous aerobic microorganisms will flourish? Well, permaculture has those ideas. You've got the practical methods. Um, yes, you do have to understand the conditions. You've got to have a little bit knowledge of the, what the biology is that you want to have. But these two approaches go hand in hand. Permaculture works because you're putting the biology back into the soil and you're setting up the conditions to make those organisms remain and do their jobs for your plants.
And that was Dr. Elaine Ingham. Find out more about her work on soil microbiology at soilfoodweb.com and on her classes and other work at Environment Celebration Institute, environmentcelebration.com. You'll find links to those and more in the resources section of the show notes. Stepping away from this conversation, I'm reminded of several past interviews that focused on citizen science and nutrient-dense foods, with Dr. Ingham's talk with David today adding the importance of soil microbiology and what we can do to support a healthy soil biome, and that as permaculture practitioners, we can blend scientific research, both our own and that of others, with our earth care practices. To help further those thoughts and discussions, I've included some links to those earlier conversations, which include Dan Kittredge and Stephen Herod Buner, in the show notes for this episode. What do you think of what Dr. Ingham is doing? Do you use a microscope in your exploration of the world? Have you taken one of her courses? Let me know. Leave a comment in the show notes. Send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or contact David, david at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Until then, spend each day exploring your soil while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.